You know, the world never learns <clears throat> that whenever humanity in the world puts pressure on the church, two things happen. The church is purified and the church grows. 2,000 years of history, they've never learned, and Satan keeps walking into the same trap over and over again. Well, let's try to afflict the church and maybe they'll give up. The only ones who give up are those who aren't true believers. The church is cleansed and those who need to come to faith in Christ come in. Happens over and over and over again. It's not fun, but it is the way Christ has chosen to grow his church. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy 12. While you're finding that chapter, the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me read that one more time. 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is very Israel-like language, isn't it? In fact, it's so much so that many theologians use 1 Peter 2.9 as an argument that the church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel, either in terms of replacement or fulfillment. But that's not the case here. Really, what it does is it highlights the definite similarities between God's chosen nation of Israel and the Holy Spirit indwelt uh, church of Jesus Christ. And there's a key conjunction, this little word in Greek expressing the purpose of being a chosen race, the purpose of being the royal priesthood, the purpose of being a holy nation, the, the purpose of being the people of God's own possession. This little conjunction, that, in order that, in order that what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our set-apart lives are described by Jesus as being salt to a tasteless world and being light to a world darkened by sin. And this was precisely the mission of Israel in the world, to be, Exodus 19, the kingdom of priests, to make God known, to give God glory, to offer to the surrounding nations the opportunity to know the one true living God. And we understand that the church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament church, we're called to go out to the world to accomplish this mission. Matthew, 8, Matthew 28, rather, the Great Commission. Israel's mission was different. They were called to live as a light to the surrounding nations that some might want to come into the people of God. Those like Rahab of Jericho or Ruth of the nation of Moab. And to demonstrate their covenant love and their loyalty to God, God gave them the glorious law the means by which they could express their true love for Yahweh and be completely different than their surrounding neighbors. Again, just to be clear, the law was never meant to save. It was never meant to be a means to impress God as a faithless individual. The law was an expression of obedience to God in whom you've placed your true, genuine faith and trust. And once again, the law of Moses given to Israel is not binding on the Christian because the cross has now rendered the law finished in terms of being, us being bound to it. Why is that? Because the law was meant for national Israel. It was meant for a theocracy. And now we have the law of Christ, the new covenant stipulations in the New Testament. But as we found all throughout our study of the Pentateuch, the Old Testament is alive and well and active and relevant as the laws and principles are based, obviously, on the never-changing character of God. So while the laws may be altered slightly from one covenant to another, their principles never change because God never changes. And so tonight we begin this section of Deuteronomy that gives the specific stipulations of the Israelite covenant. We've already looked at these sections, the historical prologue. We looked at that at first. And then we looked at the general stipulations, the general requirements headed by the repeat of the Ten Commandments. And now we get to the specific stipulations, the, the outworking of the general stipulations. And what we're going to find 
is that the specific stipulations, broadly speaking, are going to flesh out the principles of the Ten Commandments. And in fact, they do so in the order of the Ten Commandments. The specific stipulations are going to take a a large chunk of Deuteronomy. We're going to be going from chapter 12 to the end of chapter 27. So we'll take several weeks to go through these aspects of what I'm calling the covenant salvation life. The covenant salvation life. So tonight we'll get through the first four commandments and we'll express them in terms of broad principles for living the covenant salvation life. Now, as many do, and and this makes sense, we put the first and second commandments together, and then we'll consider the third and the fourth commandments individually. So we'll just divide it according to the commandments, but we'll put commandments one and two together, and here's the principle. Commandments one and two give us the principle of God-honoring worship. The principle of God-honoring worship. Here are the commands. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 5, 7, and 8. You shall have no other gods before me. That is the first commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. No other gods, no images. Now this entire section begins the same way that the general stipulation section begins. Look with me at chapter 12 verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. And just by way of reminder, Deuteronomy 5, verse 1, the beginning of the general stipulations. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So the general stipulations, chapter 5, Start the same way that the specific stipulations in chapter 12 begin. So it is to understand, know, and obey the law. Now we did spend some time in chapter 12 in our introductory message on how to understand Deuteronomy, but it's worth revisiting because it's such a central foundational chapter to the whole thrust of Deuteronomy. Chapter 12, verses 5, 11, 14... 18, 21, 26, all of those verses use this phrase that you'll worship, quote, in the place that the Lord will choose. This is very important in Deuteronomy. That phrase occurs 21 times, but this is the greatest concentration. The place that the Lord will choose, the place that the Lord will choose over and over again. And in fact, three of those verses contain another important element. Verse 5, 11, and 21, each of those contain the concept of the name of God, of, of God placing his name somewhere. And we said that the concept of God putting his name anywhere is less familiar to us and more familiar to the Israelites hearing Moses speak because it indicates in that culture ownership. It indicates victory. It indicates uh, the equivalent of a king coming and planting his flag with his name on it. And what is this place that God has chosen for his worship? Well, ultimately, it will be Jerusalem, the center of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And by the way, that is his place of worship ultimately for all of eternity. We see that all through the Bible. But is just the place so important? We saw this in our introductory message that it's absolutely important in the context of the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant, But there's a deeper, more heart-related issue concerning the centralization of worship, the central place of worship. This phrase over and over again, the, the place that I shall choose, the place that the Lord chooses, it points Israel toward a theology of pure worship versus false worship. That just coming to the right place doesn't make true worship. And so in chapter 12, we see God's insistence on the separateness, the differentness, the uniqueness, the heart of true faith, the worshiper of Yahweh has. And we see this in a series of contrasts. Verses 7 and 8 is a contrast. There you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Verse 8, you shall not do according to all we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Where's the contrast? Verse 8, between here and verse 7 and there. Where are they? Remember, they're on the plains of Moab, on the eastern shores of the Jordan River, looking across to Jericho, and they haven't graduated to having their own land yet. 
the nation is to grow up and not be like a rebellious adolescent nation which has wandered the wilderness once they arrive home. There's another contrast between verses 2 and 4. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. What's the contrast? Verse 4, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. The contrast between their gods and the Lord your God. They're different. And there's a contrast between verses 3 and 5. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Verse 5, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. What's the contrast? Here the contrast is between the name of their gods and the name of Yahweh. All of these stipulations serve to point out a theology of pure worship versus false worship that Israel cannot self-style their worship of God. They can't make it up. The chapter begins and ends very similarly, verses 2 through 4, we've already read them, and the end of the chapter basically say that Israel's worship is not to resemble the false pagan worship in any way. No pagan icons, no religious practices, there's to be no similarities at all. In fact, part of the reason for this is the the fact that pagan worship always has an air of the, the horrible, the terrible, the macabre, the dark. Because pagan gods are generally pictured as violent, impetuous, unreliable gods who are cosmic, spoiled children who have to be appeased. And so you have horrific things like human sacrifice as a part of this dark worship. But the worship of Yahweh, while it is, of course, centered on shed blood because this pictures atonement and payment for sin, but the worship of the true and living God, in contrast to pagan worship, is to be characterized by joy and by exaltation and by happiness. Look at verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice, you and all your households. Verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Verse 18, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose you and your son, your daughter, your female, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. Then you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. That's so different. If you ask a pagan in the ancient Near East, do you worship a God? Oh, yeah, I do. But if you asked him, do you rejoice before that God? They would say, what does that mean? That makes no sense. And so as God is slowly over time revealing his redemptive plan, the lesson in Deuteronomy is basically this. No one comes to God except through faith, which is expressed in this central place of worship. One singular place where a person may legally approach God for forgiveness and reconciliation. Or maybe a shorter version of this. No one comes to God except through right temple worship by faith. No one comes to God except through right temple worship by faith. So under the Israelite covenant, no one comes to God except through right temple worship by faith. But of course, that's going to change with the new covenant. Now, the centralization of worship is not focused on a place, but on a person. And now in the church age, it's not. No one comes to God except through right temple worship by faith. Now, still by faith, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now the focus, the centralization of worship is on Christ. And so you may not attempt to come to God outside of Christ. You may not attempt to worship God in your own way. You may not self-style a relationship with God. In fact, we see the central focus of God-honoring worship illustrated in one of the really easy-to-understand commands of this chapter. Look at verses 12 and 13. I'm sorry, 13 and 14. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. In other words, only God decides what is an acceptable sacrifice. Only God decides that. What can we learn from this? God is the one who describes his own worship. 
And the elements of God-honoring worship are universal throughout all the eras of God's redemptive history. They're, they're always the same. And let me give you a few of these elements. God-honoring worship is a required response. It is a required response. Response to what? Response to the revelation of God. He has revealed himself. God has revealed his existence. He's revealed his holiness. He's revealed his glory. His offer of salvation from sin. And worship is the only right response to this revelation. And it's not optional. To say, I don't want to be a Christian is to say, I refuse to worship God. Now, someone might say, well, I only worship God because I want to. That's not what Scripture says. Both Old Testament and New Testament commands the worship of God. 1 John 3.23 says that you are commanded to obey the gospel. It is a command. So God-honoring worship is a required response. There's a second element of God-honoring worship that's universal. God-honoring worship requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice. Sin prevents true worship, and so for worship to exist, atonement is necessary. The Old Testament sacrificial system prefigured and foreshadowed the the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice for sin in Christ. But even going beyond that, the worshiper in the Old Testament would never think of coming to appear before God without bringing a gift, without bringing a sacrifice. Why is that? Because it was against the law. You were not allowed to worship God without bringing something. Even the poorest of the poor were allowed by the law to go out and catch a bird and bring the bird as a sacrifice. In the New Testament, we're called to generously support the work of the ministry by means of our sacrificial giving. And the so-called worshiper who refuses to give, who refuses to sacrifice as part of worship, and yet claims to worship Christ, they honestly stand on very, very shaky ground in terms of assurance of salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. The one with great means but has a miserly giving habit. They stand on shaky ground because it says where their heart truly is. There's a third element that is universal across the ages. God-honoring worship involves proclamation of revelation. God-honoring worship involves proclamation of revelation. We can see this in Deuteronomy. The whole book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons. It's a series of sermons to the gathered people of Israel hearing the proclaimed word of God preached by Moses. The New Testament church gathers first and foremost as the highest priority to hear the preached word of God. Because remember that worship is a response to what? Response to the revelation of God. So the more revelation of God we hear and know from the preached scriptures, the more we are worshiping. And so that only makes sense that God-honoring worship involves proclamation of revelation. This is the pinnacle of what we do is to open the Bible and say, this is what God says. We could also say a fourth element is that God-honoring worship involves homage and humility. It involves homage and humility. One key Hebrew word for worship in the Old Testament means to bow down in submission. Another key word in the Old Testament means to do something that is weighty or heavy or to give glory. One key Greek word for worship in the New Testament means to bow down in submission. Another key Greek word in the New Testament means to fall down before somebody who is greater than you. Another key Greek word in the New Testament means to serve God in obedience. And yet another key Greek word in the New Testament for worship means to express awe and fear and respect. And so you can get this picture, bow down is something heavy and weighty. It is to give glory. It is to bow down. It is to fall down. It is to serve God in obedience, to give to him awe and respect and fear. It is the silliest thing in the world to say, well, I don't have to fear God. I just respect him. Let me rephrase that. If you say, I don't have to fear God, what you're saying is I disrespect him. God has always been the same. He is to be feared. He is to be bowed down before. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you. But Jesus is not your buddy. He is the God of the universe. 
God-honoring worship involves homage and humility. God-honoring worship, fifth, involves covenant renewal. God-honoring worship involves covenant renewal. This is not something we talk about a lot in the New Testament church. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system and Passover served as a means of proclaiming and reasserting the fact that you are loyal to God, that you're a loyal follower of God and remembering that He's the sovereign King. In the New Testament, we don't speak in these terms as much as we probably should, but in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, Water baptism is the symbol of entering into the new covenant with Christ and the Lord's table. We partook of this this morning. The Lord's table reminds us that the new covenant was formed in the blood of Christ and we're remembering and expressing our loyalty and love for Christ. How do we know that the Lord's table is an expression of covenant loyalty, of reaffirming covenant loyalty? Because in 1 Corinthians 11, if you are disobedient and you're rebellious against God, you are said to be not allowed to take the Lord's table. You'd better not take it, in fact. Because you're saying with your actions, I am disloyal. And so you come up and you say, oh, I'm going to pretend like I'm loyal. That does not please the Lord. And so it is a covenant reaffirming activity. It's a great time. All of you this morning, you, you searched your own hearts and it's a big deal, isn't it? You take that bread and you take the cup and you are coming before God saying, I've searched my heart. I have confessed every sin I can think of. You are reaffirming your covenant loyalty and love for Christ. It's another element of God-honoring worship that's universal. God-honoring worship involves prayer and praise. It involves prayer and praise. Did you know this, that just the act of gathering to worship together in in many ways is an act of prayer because you are communicating to God that you're devoted to Him? But the gathered saints of God are in an attitude of prayer when we're gathered, or you should be in an attitude of prayer at least. Your, Your focused communication with God throughout the elements of a worship service, that's our, our thought is we're constantly in communion with God And of course, God's people express their praise as commanded in Scripture through song, the singing of glorious, doctrinally rich music. In fact, Deuteronomy ends with a hymn of praise and remembrance and commitment. And you think our hymnal has some long hymns. This one has 43 verses. And of course, the New Testament church is commanded to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's another element that is universal. God-honoring worship involves the assembly of God's people. God-honoring worship involves the assembly of God's people. We've talked about this extensively in the past year, and I don't care. We're going to talk about it again. There are professing believers who don't seem to think that gathering together is required. How many times I've heard this phrase as a pastor, well, I worship God in my own way, or my church is the forest, or my church is the backyard, or my church is my house. You know what that's code language for? I'm not really a Christian. That's what that says. Israel gathered as a nation to worship. The church gathers to worship. You know, in Nehemiah chapter 8, on the first day of the seventh month, Israel gathered to worship and hear the word of God. If you read Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, you figure out how long they gathered. They gathered for 23 straight days to hear the word of God all day long. And we figured out this morning in Bible Training Institute that that's basically two years worth of Sundays in less than a month. They gathered. We do value our personal worship time with God. That's important, but that's not a valid replacement for the assembly of God's people for all who are able to do so. And, and listen, this isn't just a random assembly. You don't get together with a few Christians in your home and say, hey, we're a church. No. A qualified assembly means there is a membership. It means there are qualified leaders. It means that the assembly partakes in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table. And the assembly works to purify itself for Christ up to and including church discipline or restoration. That's a church. A bunch of Christians gathering together over a pot of soup does not make it a church. It's just a bunch of Christians who are hungry and eating. And that's okay, but that's not the church. So I hope you see that God-honoring worship is universal and that these principles are timeless across the Israelite covenant, the new covenant, and they'll extend into the future as well. All those principles will. 
Well, let's go on to the third commandment, the principle of taking God's name. The third commandment, the principle of taking God's name. Deuteronomy 5.11, I'll just read it to you. This is the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does this mean? Well, literally, in Hebrew, it means you shall not lift up the name of Yahweh your God to emptiness or worthlessness. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh your God to emptiness or worthlessness. The name of God is an extension of his personhood. It's an extension of his being, of of his character. In the ancient Near East, the name of a person not only represented his qualities and his character, it even represented the person himself. That if a king planted a flag that had his name on it, it's as if he is there. Now, this is a very vague commandment, which is great because it gives many applications. This is sort of like a parent whose children say, Father, what are the rules? And you say, the rule is obey me. Well, that's kind of vague. Yes, it is. And what does that mean? Well, you better figure it out because I'm going to give you lots of other commandments. Oh, this is beautiful how vague it is. What, what does this mean? Well, it can include any careless use of God's name. All of us shiver a little bit and we feel a little offended when the name of God is used as a curse or the name of God is used because you hit your thumb with a hammer. It can include attempts to manipulate God for human purposes, praying in Jesus' name as a formula to get whatever you want instead of praying for the will of God. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. It can include daring to believe you speak for God prophetically. We used to live next door to these precious charismatic folks who were, would on occasion give my wife little pieces of paper with prophecies on them. And uh, one time my wife just kind of looked at her until the young lady realized, I'm never going to do that again. I understand that, but that is taking the Lord's name in vain. It also carries the idea, and I think this is the main idea, of being outwardly associated with God and yet not inwardly true and faithful. That's the main idea. How how do we understand that? When a woman gets married, she takes her husband's name. If she gets married and doesn't live as a married woman, she has taken his name, what? In vain. It's been worthless. It's empty. But let's put this positively. This is a test of true inward reality of faith because the Lord's name is intensely precious and delightful to the true believer. And this commandment now is expanded upon in Deuteronomy chapters 13 and 14. We'll divide it into two lessons. The lesson of Deuteronomy 13 is this. If you have taken the name of God, your loyalty is to him alone. If you have taken the name of God, your loyalty is to him alone. And God gives here three crescendoing or intensifying situations in which someone might be tempted to compromise their loyalty to God, to compromise the fact that they've taken his name. The first one is we see the temptation of apparent signs and wonders. The temptation of apparent signs and wonders. Chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart And with all your soul, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So some guy can either by means of trickery or demonic power perform some sign or wonder and everybody starts falling all over themselves to follow whatever he says, including idolatry. What's supposed to happen to him? A public rebuke? A book written about this guy? No. Verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. In other words, get rid of the cancer. Get rid of the spiritual cancer. So there's the temptation of apparent signs and wonders, but it crescendos, it intensifies. Second, we have the temptation of family loyalty. The temptation of family loyalty. 
Chapter 13, verse 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. Now it's getting harder. Because now, well, it's family first, right? Always family first. No. Loyalty to God does not have asterisks. It does not have caveats. It does not have exceptions. Let me put it to you this way in terms you can understand. If you're hanging around people who claim to be Christians or maybe they're even not, I want you to ask yourself, are they encouraging your walk with Christ or are they making it harder? If they're making it harder, they are not the people to be around. If they're those who are encouraging you toward Christ-likeness, they're the people to be around. I'm not saying we are totally separate from the world, but the ones you are closest to, your family, your friends, if they're dragging you in a direction you don't want to go, what's supposed to happen? You are supposed to, to not be influenced by that person. And here, of course, we see a radical option here in the Old Testament law, verse 9, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. Can you imagine this? Your son has convinced members of your family to go off after other gods and he's caught and he doesn't repent and you've confronted him. The law says you will throw the first stone. That's tough. But the crescendo is even higher. The temptation to compromise loyalty to God. Now we really crank up the temptation. The third temptation is the temptation of cultural popularity. The temptation of cultural popularity. Verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known Now, what's happening? Worthless fellows have enticed an entire city. Now the culture is following in a mass together. Is the right response? Well, if it's so popular, it must be good. It must be right. Everybody's believing this. No. Verse 14. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. In other words, study what is being taught. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it, and its cattle with the edge of the sword. If you've taken the name of God, don't lift up the name of God to emptiness or worthlessness. Now, you might say, well, this is just the harshness of the Old Testament. No, the New Testament addressed all three of those temptations. First, the temptation of apparent signs and wonders. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In other words, even to true believers, some of these things are going to seem slick and tempting. But to those who follow after the false, self-proclaimed miracle workers, they're showing ultimately the falseness of their profession of faith in Christ. The second temptation that gets cranked up even further, the temptation of family loyalty. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This isn't speaking of emotional hatred like seething anger. It speaks of the radical nature of following Christ, that even family relationships cannot come before your loyalty to Christ. It can't happen. And third, it gets cranked up even more, the temptation of cultural popularity. We don't judge truth by how many people are getting on the bandwagon of something. We don't judge truth by how many books have sold. 
We don't judge truth by how sparkly and bubbly a world-renowned speaker is. By the way, world-renowned speakers are often world-renowned because they have a really good marketing business behind them, not because they just are naturally invited places. And we certainly don't judge truth by experience. But it made me feel closer to God. It made me feel great. It made me know God better. No, it made you know the version of God that a false teacher gave you. This morning, we saw that the deception of speaking in tongues, which is just gibberish, makes people feel closer to God. That doesn't make it true. Let me ask you a question. If cultural popularity and slick doctrinal deviations were not a danger to the church, why would the New Testament command the preachers and the shepherds of Christ's church like this? 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, meaning the shepherds and the preachers, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice, a preacher who does not correct is incomplete. If cultural popularity and slick doctrinal deviations aren't a danger to the church, why would we get commands like 2 Timothy 4, 2 and 3? Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Know this, rebuke and exhort, how? With complete patience. Now stop right there for a minute. That is not speaking of the demeanor of the preacher. That is not speaking of saying that the preacher should say, you know, I just want to suggest that maybe you obey the Lord and I'm just going to be really, really patient. No, it's not speaking of the demeanor of the preacher. It's speaking of the repetitiveness and the detailed nature of reproving, rebuking, and exhorting over and over and over and over again. In other words, don't stop. Keep going. Be patient with the fact that God's people are sanctified at the rate of a snail sometimes. And just keep going. Don't give up. It's a long road. If cultural popularity and slick doctrinal deviations weren't a danger to the church, why would the New Testament command preachers and shepherds like this? 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul is speaking of the ministry of the word. That verse is not speaking of, well, I need to think good thoughts. No, this is a preacher saying, you're thinking the wrong thought. I'm going to take it captive, cut it in pieces, and throw it away so that you don't think those thoughts anymore. This is aggressive. It doesn't say that we talk about false arguments. He says we destroy them. The Greek word for destroy means to destroy. There, there's, no, there's no lack of clarity there. And we destroy lofty opinions. Statements of theology that sound so high and lofty they have an ooh and ah factor to them that they must be true. That when you read something or hear somebody that sounds so lofty that you say, I don't understand the word he said, but it must be true because it's, it's over my head. No, that's a lofty opinion. Titus 1.9 says that the preacher and the shepherd is to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, not make suggestions to them, rebuke them. I've been told on occasion, well, pastor, it's very rude to name names. You shouldn't do that. How are you going to know who to watch out for? 1 Timothy 1, Paul said, there are certain men in the church that I won't name. No, he said, Alexander and Hymenaeus. I have turned them over to Satan. He put them out of the church for their false teaching. And someone might say, well, that's a personal letter to Timothy. No, it's a letter to the whole church. He ends the letter. Grace be with you, plural, all of you. Third John 9 and 10, John names Diotrephes as one who talks, quote, wicked nonsense. And John says that when he comes, he's going to confront him and expose him publicly. Second Timothy 4.10, one of Paul's former Fellow teachers of the word, Paul says that Demas has deserted him because he loves the things of this world. There was never a hesitation to name names. Today, well-known leaders of the church of Jesus Christ are falling all over themselves to show how woke they are. They're reconstructing the gospel 
to mean trying to change the world through worldly ideology. Why are they getting on this train? Because of the third temptation, cultural popularity. Everyone else is doing it. What's the lesson of chapter 13? If you have taken the name of God, your loyalty is to Him alone. There's a lesson of chapter 14. If you've taken the name of God, there's an observable effect. If you've taken the name of God, there's an observable effect. In other words, your actions will show this. Here's the cause of the effect. Chapter 14, verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You're the sons of Yahweh. In other words, you have taken His name. And therefore, you're to be different. How are you to be different? Well, chapter 14 gives a variety of examples. And these are very easy to generalize to every area of life. But there's three examples. The first way you're to be different is you're different in how you view death. You're different in how you view death. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There was a pagan mourning custom of lacerating your body as an expression of hopeless agony. What did the Apostle Paul say about this? He said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who were asleep, in other words, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And so you're different in how you view death. There's another example. You're different in how you follow worldly customs. You're different in how you follow worldly customs. Verse 3, you shall not eat any abomination. This word for abomination, it means a detestable thing. It is used almost every time in Deuteronomy in connection, listen carefully, in connection to idolatry and Canaanite practices. And then there's this list of acceptable meat animals and unacceptable meat animals. And it seems that this list has to do something with a comparison to the religiously perverted practices of the Canaanites. We're not given that connection, but that's the general idea. Don't do what the world does. Don't copy those around you. In fact, one of the most mysterious verses in all of Deuteronomy, the very end of verse 21, how do you apply this? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You can kind of say, you know, that's one command I know I can follow. I will never do that. But what's that about? Well, it's in the context of don't do what pagans do in their religious practices. And apparently that was something they did. Don't do that. Now, the New Testament makes it very clear that the new covenant believer is not bound by dietary law. In fact, Peter even received a direct revelation from God in Acts chapter 10 to make that very clear. But the Christian is different in how you follow worldly customs in the sense of not loving the things of the world, being spiritually detached from the world and not dependent on what the world has to offer. The Apostle John said it this way in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's so easily applicable. You simply look at everything the world has to offer and ask yourself the question, Would I give that up for Christ? And the answer should be yes, all the way across the board. Then there's one more example of how we're different. You're different in how you use money. You're different in how you use money. Verses 22 through 29 explains how the support of the theocratic system will work. The tithe, the 10% offering, the tenth. Verses 22 through 27, there is an annual tithe. Then there's an every three-year tithe. Now, some say that this is instead of the annual tithe. Others say it's in addition to it. It doesn't make any difference. In any case, the produce of the ground was to be seen as a gift from God, and a pretty substantial proportion was given back to God. This was also that this was to be given back to God to support those who perform the full-time work of running the theocratic system. Verse 27 And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. And also, it was to provide benevolence for those in need. Verse 29. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. What a promise! Be generous. Give, 
provide for those that don't provide for themselves, that the Lord your God might bless you. The Israelite who failed to give this tithe was essentially saying that everything he had was for him, from him, and had not come from God. That was the message he's giving. Now, obviously, the New Testament Christian isn't bound by the law of the tithe. There's no theocratic national system to support, but there is the church to support. The same principles apply to the New Testament Christian. 1 Timothy 6.18 commands that if you have a lot, you need to give a lot. 1 Timothy 5.17-18 commands the, the generous financial support of those who preach the word. And it even specifies that this is not to be seen as charity or a gift, but that, quote, the laborer deserves his wages. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, Beginning in verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So chapter 14 gives these examples, specific ways that there is an observable effect that you've taken the name of God. You're different in how you view death. You're different in how you view follow worldly customs. And you're different in how you use money. So the lesson of chapter 13, if you've taken the name of God, your loyalty is to him alone. And the lesson of chapter 14, if you've taken the name of God, there's an observable effect. Well, let's do the fourth commandment. They didn't get my timer going tonight, so I feel so free right now. It still says zero. The fourth commandment, we'll call this one the principle of a punctuated life. And we're almost done. The principle of a punctuated life. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This commandment is achieved by ceasing regular labor on the seventh day by the citizens, the servants, even the working animals. There's a lot of motives behind the fourth commandment. It's a memorial that God made everything in six days and rested on the seventh. It establishes and emphasizes that the creation is made by only one true God. It's meant to stimulate continued loyalty. That as you remember that God created in in six days, you remain loyal to him because every seventh day you stop to remember that. It reflects that humanity is created to be God's vice regent, co-rulers over the earth. As he rested on the seventh day, so also Israel was to rest. Hebrews 4 even says it has end times implications that the Sabbath rest ultimately is expressed in coming to faith in Christ and in resting in him for all time. So the Sabbath serves as a sign of God's covenant with Israel. It was a sign unique to them. And yet it's full of principles easily applicable today. So what do we mean by a punctuated life? A punctuated life is a life that's characterized by markers, by time indications which revolve around God. Chapters 15 and 16 illustrate the principles of a punctuated life, a life bound by time markers that are centered on our God. We've already seen this in chapter 14. There's a tithe that's annual. There's a tithe which is every three years. And now in chapter 15, we get some more markers. And we begin with marking every seventh year. And this is a year to demonstrate the grace of God, to work out the grace of God, as it were, by extending grace to others in a sabbatical year. It's where we get the term sabbatical. Chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there shall be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. What a concept. The people of God taking care of one another. There shall be no poor among you. Verse 7. 
If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now, if this is happening every seventh year, what happens when your neighbor or your brother comes to you in year six and says, I have a need? Well, verse nine says, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. And what's the reason? Verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. This isn't a contradiction to verse 4. It's just stating the reality that as long as we live in the sinful world, hard times are going to hit some. But the covenant community is to care for one another. They're to love each other. A little side note here. What is God's ultimate plan for Israel? One which they have never yet achieved as a saved nation. Back in verse 6. For the Lord your God will bless you as He promised you and you shall lend to many nations But you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. You shall rule over many nations. God's ultimate plan for Israel is to be the lead nation on planet Earth. Exodus 23 also says that in this Sabbath year, the farmland is to lie fallow. Crops aren't to be cultivated, but whatever grows by itself on the land will provide for the poor and even for the animals wandering in this area. I want you to notice two things. First of all, this is as close to an ideal world as you could ever have. This is absolutely ideal. And the second thing I want you to know this is this is not some sort of Marxist redistribution of wealth. It's not. Property rights, the value of attaining wealth and property, all of those things are retained and yet the less fortunate are also cared for, not because of government programs, but because of love. That's the motivation. And in fact, the primary way that someone was to dig out of a financial problem was to work. Verses 12 through 18 deals with the Israelite who's been sold to you. Not in the sense of degrading inhumane slavery in the way we think of slavery, but a working arrangement whereby an overwhelming debt or maybe even a theft could be repaid and money earned. Let me put it to you this way. Some of these steals now, we throw him in prison for 10 years and that does absolutely no good for him. In Israel's system, you steal from someone, you just got hired to work work for him until you worked off the debt. But even better than that, there's light, there's a limit, light at the end of the tunnel. Chapter 15, verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, here's the light at the end of the tunnel, you shall let him go free from you. Well, that sounds pretty good. It gets even better. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Let me ask you a question. Somebody steals a fortune from you. He gets caught. He's given a choice by Moses or by the elders that you will either be put to death or you will repay this debt by working for this man and this family. You have nothing. You will go live with them. You will work for them for half wages until your debt is paid. And he works for three, four, five, or six years. And he earns money and he repays the debt. He becomes part of the family. What would Jesus call that? He would call that being light and salt. He would call that grace. And in fact, there's even a provision because sometimes these servants don't want to leave. Verse 16, but if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household. Since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. There's another time marker. 
Each year when your flocks and herds start reproducing, the first male born that season isn't to be used for profit. Instead, verse 20, you shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. In other words, reminding the Israelite family that God is their provider, and so they sacrifice this firstborn of the season. Other time markers you're a little more familiar with. One of the premier time markers of the Israelites' life, chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, the Passover. This is at the same time as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then we see the celebration of the first harvest, the Feast of Weeks, chapter 16, verse 11. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and so forth during the Feast of Weeks. And then finally, you have the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It's a time to remember that Israel once wandered the wilderness, staying in tents. Verse 13, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. Listen, the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they happen at the same time. The Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths were the three times per year that all the men of Israel, they could bring their families if they wanted to, but when all the men of Israel were gathered in that one place. Chapter 16, verse 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Now, if those three festivals sound familiar to you, all three of them play the major role in the New Testament. John 7 records that during the Feast of Booths, Jesus gave one of his final appeals to come to saving faith in him. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was exactly the time Jesus was arrested and crucified. This is why there were such vast crowds there witnessing the death of Christ. All of Israel was there to witness his death. And the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost, the Feast of the First Harvest, the First Fruits, is where the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven to inaugurate the church age, we understand this. Second Thessalonians 2.13 calls you the first fruits of salvation. Now, we're not under a Sabbath law or under a festival system punctuating the year, but could I apply this in two ways? First of all, we are called to worship on the Lord's day. We are called to worship on the Lord's day. I, I've had mixed feelings about churches that offer services other times of the week on a Friday night or whatever as a replacement for Sunday. I just never get excited about it. You know, in my ministry, I have prayed with eight or nine different men that they could get off work on Sundays to worship with the Lord. I've seen the Lord answer every one of those prayers. The New Testament church was so familiar with the Lord's day as Sunday, the day that Christ was raised from the dead. The Revelation 1.10, John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He didn't even say it was Sunday. Everyone knew it. If you don't punctuate your life with the Lord's day, you are losing the incredible blessing of regularly pausing your life to trust the Lord that you don't have to work every moment to survive. One more application. Many of these festivals are making a comeback. Did you know that? Zechariah 14, 16 says in the kingdom of Christ, all the nations will celebrate the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. Ezekiel 45, 21 says Passover is coming back. And Isaiah 66, 23 says Sabbath is coming back. Now the Bible doesn't specify the others, but one thing is certain, in the coming kingdom of Christ, your lives of worship will be punctuated. Not with the Lord's day, but sometimes with a week. Well, so many principles here. I don't know about you, but the covenant salvation life that gives us principles from those first four commandments, it's sweet, it's pleasant, it's hopeful, it's joyful. We're not bound by the law of Moses, but those principles are universal. They guide us to a life bound up in God, bound up in our faith, bound up in our identity as followers of Christ. And if you will live that punctuated life, you know what that makes you? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Don't ever believe that the Old Testament doesn't apply to you today. It is as timeless as today, isn't it? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for a clear word. How we can relate to believers from 3,500 years ago. The principles are the same. May we live a life of God-honoring worship that honors you in a way that is pleasing to you and you alone. May we have taken your name not to emptiness or worthlessness, but in loyalty. And may we live a punctuated life where we stop, we pause to celebrate our God, to celebrate our Savior, to celebrate our salvation. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.